You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. Regular listeners may spot that this episode is a little earlier in the month than normal, and that's because we've got a very special discovery to talk about this time. A team of astronomers has detected hints that indicate the possibility that there may be life in the clouds of Venus. Despite the maybes and possibilities, I sort of can't believe I'm saying those words, and we'll explore the discovery in this episode with a few of the people involved with it. This month also marks a little anniversary. Ten years ago this month, I started an astronomy roundup on Pythagoras's trousers on Radio Cardiff with Rhys Phillips. The format has changed over the years, and the extended version on the podcast came uh, much later. But over the years, the subjects that have come up have been incredibly broad, uh, from human spaceflight to exploration of the distant universe, and from scientific conferences to public events. And one of the subjects that comes up incredibly frequently, however, certainly more recently, is that of exoplanets. The discovery, and particularly recently, the more detailed study of planets in other solar systems. And while the evolution and the formation of solar systems elsewhere is of interest in its own right for understanding where we came from, for example, one of the reasons it has been of interest more widely is the possibility of finding life elsewhere. The search for life elsewhere has also been continuing much closer to home as well, here in our own solar system. Much of the focus, particularly in recent years, has been on or below the surface of Mars, with little focus on the hellish landscape of the planet Venus. The surface of Venus is completely inhospitable, at least to life as we know it, or even close to as we know it. With temperatures hot enough to melt lead, and atmospheric pressures at the surface of 90 times that on Earth, you simply couldn't exist on the surface. The clouds, however, are a different matter about 50 kilometres altitude, for example, there are cloud decks which are at a temperature not dissimilar to the surface temperature here on Earth, and there are an atmospheric pressure, again, not dissimilar to that found on Earth. There are even small amounts of water, but it's still not a particularly hospitable place. And, of course, there's no surface for life to walk or crawl around on. But those clouds of Venus are certainly the focus right now. I'm joined this month by three people involved with this latest discovery. My colleague here in Cardiff, Professor Jane Greaves, who led the study, Professor Sarah Seeger from MIT, and Dr Dave Clements from Imperial College London. Welcome all to the programme. I think it's best to cut to the chase and start with the headline. So Jane, could you give us a summary of uh, what you discovered as part of this latest study? And we'll dig into some of the details later. What we found is some traces of the gas phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus, and it is very unexpected there. And um, one of the possible interpretations of it is it's made by microorganisms, essentially floating bacteria in the high clouds of Venus. So as a sign of possible life off the Earth, this is incredibly exciting for us. Phosphine isn't a molecule that most people will have, will have heard of. Uh, Sarah, um, what's phosphine got to do with life? You're right, Chris. Phosphine is kind of an obscure molecule, and most people haven't heard of it. But on Earth, phosphine is only associated with life, either bacterial life in oxygen-free environments, like swamps and sludges and wetlands and animal guts, or produced by humans. It's actually nearly impossible to imagine any chemical process that can form phosphine on Earth, other than life. It's also a relatively simple molecule. It's just phosphorus and hydrogen, right? So it seems bizarre that such a simple molecule is so um, special in some ways. Well, in a hydrogen-free environment like Earth, and an environment with a lot of oxygen, phosphine is not the natural form of the element phosphorus. It's phosphates instead. So 
phosphorus attached to oxygen atoms is the predominant prevalent form of phosphorus here on Earth. Now, when looking for, for phosphine, this result involves radio telescopes. So, Dave, um, how does one use a radio telescope to look for a chemical on another planet? Any particular molecule, any particular substance you want to look at will have certain characteristic uh, spectral features. So these, these are to do with how that molecule vibrates, um, rotates, etc. The, the details of this vary from one molecular species to another. And each of these, these moving modes, as it were, corresponds to a particular wavelength of light, light in its broadest sense across the whole electromagnetic spectrum. And if you're moving, for example, hydrogens relative to the phosphorus atom in phosphine, there's not a lot of energy in those transitions. And so you're not looking at things in the visible part of the spectrum or the near infrared, you're looking at much longer wavelengths at, uh, at millimeter wavelengths, which is where we did our observation with the James Scott Maxwell telescope and with the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. So the millimeter part of the spectrum is actually a rich place for looking for various different molecular species. The bread and butter for telescopes like JCMT and ALMA is in fact carbon monoxide, CO. But phosphine has its transitions, or at least a very important strong transition, uh, in that same part of the spectrum, but at a different wavelength to CO. And so we can look for that fingerprint, that specific wavelength where the excitation of a, of a phosphine molecule absorbs photons or a, a small fraction of the photons coming from the lower parts of Venus's atmosphere. We can look for that fingerprint at a particular wavelength. And if we see it, we can start saying something about the amount of phosphine. First of all, that there is phosphine there, but also say something about the amount of phosphine that is in the atmosphere of Venus. And Jane, this kind of study of looking for chemicals out in space, um, on planets or between the planets is something that you've been involved with uh, for, for a long time now. Um, what was the link that took from radio telescopes looking for molecules to searching for life on Venus? How did this all come about? It was kind of by chance, um, some random things I picked up on. So it was actually Dave who asked me to talk about what we could do for solar system science in the future with a far infrared space telescope called Speaker. Um, and I was reading up some stuff on solar system and got interested in phosphine because it does occur in the gas giant planets Jupiter and Saturn. But that's because, as Sarah said, they're really hydrogen rich. And I realized, oh, you don't get it on Earth, except you do where there are these colonies of microbes. So I read some very interesting and no doubt very serious papers about um, penguin crap <laughs> because there's bacteria in the guts of penguins. So apparently they leave a trail of phosphine producing stuff behind them on the ice. <laughs> um, and then I wasn't going to look for flying penguins. But in the back of my mind, I remembered that this is an idea that the clouds of Venus might be habitable. Life might have taken refuge there. And somehow this clicked as a why in the future might we not have a go looking for phosphine as a tracer of anaerobic life in these clouds? And then I couldn't wait till this telescope that Dave's working on got built. I realized that the JCMT could actually do one of these spectral lines of phosphine already, and it was all ready to go. That was the first detection with the James Clark Maxwell telescope. And then you went on and got further data from, from ALMA to, to secure the results. Now, Finding out that there's, there's phosphine on, on Venus is, is one thing. Now, Sarah, you mentioned that phosphine is associated with, with life uh, here on Earth. 
Um, Venus, although it's a similar size to the Earth, and some people talk about it as being the twin planet, it is not the Earth. Is there anything on Venus that uh, could explain the phosphine that, you know, we can't explain in Earth's environment, we, we could potentially in Venus's environment? Not that we know of. Some of our team members worked diligently, exhaustively, to think through all processes, volcanoes, lightning, meteorite delivery, any kind of chemistry or photochemistry in the atmosphere or surface or subsurface chemistry and cannot find any way, any known way for phosphine to be produced by a non-life process. Sherlock Holmes said that uh, if you eliminate the impossible, well, I say Sherlock Holmes says, uh, Sherlock Holmes, the fictitious character, of course, said, uh, if you eliminate the impossible, anything uh, that remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Now, that kind of describes the way science works. Eliminating the impossible, though, is well, kind of impossible in its own sense. There may well be things that haven't been haven't been thought of. Um, the the idea that this is life, Sarah, seems also um, in in the clouds of Venus. This sounds almost preposterous to have the idea of life in the clouds in the clouds of Venus. Uh, it's not a new idea, though. How how long has this idea been around? Well, people have been kicking around the idea of life in Venus's atmosphere for decades, since the nineteen sixties and seventies, even. But you know, Chris. This thought of life in Venus's atmosphere, it is almost preposterous to us as well. And it's just such a crazy idea. But the detection of phosphine is making us take it very seriously. And so it's, it's left as the one uh, semi-feasible solution to explain why phosphine is, is, is there, I, I guess. I would say we're carrying around two possibilities. One is that there is some unknown chemistry, which seems also preposterous. And one is that there is some kind of life in the atmosphere. But I think what you were getting at is that even the Venus surface is incredibly hostile to life. And the Venus clouds, where we've detected the phosphine coming from, they at least are the right, have the right temperature for life. Not too hot, not too cold, but just right for life. But the conditions there are also hostile. Drier by 50 or 100 times than the driest place on Earth. And these liquid droplets, because all life needs some kind of liquid, the liquid droplets are a billion times more acidic than the most acidic environments on Earth. So if there is life in Venus, it's got to be something very, very different from our life here on Earth. Dave, we talk about the the idea of life on Venus being a a long-running theory. Um, Life elsewhere in the the solar system, or the universe in the solar system, has been an idea that's been around for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years ago, people were convinced there was going to be life everywhere, or they they saw no reason there wouldn't be life everywhere. Um, And... It's interesting, I think, that that idea of where we could find life over the course of the second half of the 20th century, those options diminished greatly as we found out more. And then they they started increasing a bit. Can you say a little bit about how our, our understanding of the habitability of various places has changed over the past, say, 100 years? If you go back 100 years, we really didn't know very much about our near, nearest neighbour planets, Venus, Mars. Um, about 100 years ago, it was still possible to think that the surface of Venus was covered in, well, shrouded by clouds of water vapor, like at the clouds we have today, but in a permanent state. And, and there, were, there were realistic descriptions of the surface of Venus as being like a huge swamp um, and that life would be possible there. Uh, at the same time, we have Mars, which again, we didn't know what the surface was like properly. But as we've, we've looked further and, and, and got to understand our neighbouring planets better, we find that Mars has got hardly any, any atmosphere at all. It's, it's a very dry place. Um, Venus 
is shrouded in clouds of sulfuric acid. It has an incredibly thick atmosphere with a runaway greenhouse effect so that the surface temperature is high enough to melt lead and the surface atmospheric pressure is about 100 times the atmospheric pressure we have on the surface of the Earth. Um, so neither of these are really very nice places to live. Mars, it turns out, may have been warm and wet, to use the, the technical description, uh, much earlier in the solar system. It's possible that something might be buried beneath the surface still, and there are hints maybe of that with methane detections, which is another potential biomarker. But methane gets produced by volcanic activity as well, which we do know happens on, on Mars. So the jury is very much out on, on Mars at the moment, but there's going to be nothing like um, Martian war machines coming from there. But as we've learned more about other places in the solar system, as you say, our potential places where life might exist has, has started to grow again. So this was really kicked off by the detailed investigation of moons around gas giant planets, um, plumes of liquid water coming out of Enceladus, one of the moons of Saturn. So there's clearly liquid water there underneath the, the icy surface, many kilometers underneath the icy surface probably. And so if there is liquid water, there is the potential that there might be something biological going on. And, and this also applies to Europa, uh, a moon of Jupiter, um, and there are other places in the solar system. And so the hunt really is, is on again for life within our own solar system. And the, the focus for the last few decades has, has been Mars for life elsewhere because of this evidence of past water uh, and because of, of, of newer evidence that it had all the chemical components required to make life, at least life as we know it. So, so Jane, when you started pointing these telescopes at Venus, is this where you thought you'd be a few years later of doing press releases about potential signs of life on Venus? No, it's not where I thought we'd be. I thought this was a really neat experiment and we were joking about it a bit and going, who wants the Nobel Prize? But really, I thought we'd get some kind of null result. But it would be sensitive enough with the JCMT to be of some interest to other astrobiologists who would then argue about whether phosphine was silly in the first place. So yeah, I was um, just stunned when I realised the JCMT was actually presenting us with this spectral line of phosphine. Sarah, when it comes to you know, other astrobiologists that Jane mentioned, um, a lot of your work focuses on looking beyond our solar system um, rather than uh, planets within our solar system. How does the potential signs, the potential hints of life on Venus um, affect those searches? Is there anything that, that it impacts on, on those searches for, for life elsewhere? Detection of phosphine on Venus impacts so many things. If a few years later, we're able to confirm that actually it's life producing phosphine, it has tremendous implications for the search for life elsewhere. Because if life in our solar system could have originated separately, you know, at least two separate times, it lends us hope that life can originate wherever the ingredients for life are, wherever it's possible. And that means we'll have much better chances of finding signs of life elsewhere. It's also a great stepping stone, if you will. Because before I reconnected with Jane for phosphine, my team had been studying phosphine as a biosignature gas. I actually have a project where since about 2014, 2015, we've been making a giant database of all molecules in gas form. There's like 14,000 molecules. We're going through classes of molecules as well. Now in exoplanets, you'd need so much of it. Like life would have to be, like Jane was mentioning penguins and penguin poop, and you'd literally have to have your planet covered in that stuff. But still, um, this phosphine on Venus, it's, it's just astonishing. 
And Jane, it, it was mentioned that there are two possibilities. One, exciting unknown chemistry, and two, the arguably more exciting prospect of there being uh, life in microbial form in the clouds uh, of Venus. Um, are there plans to go and try and tell the difference between those two uh, or, or how might we do that in the future? I think we can do a bit more with observations. So if we can um, look in more detail about where the phosphine is on the planet in the atmosphere, um, we can test this against ideas of um, how the microbes would circulate Sarah's models. Um, I think ultimately we'd have to go and do something different at the planet. So send a small space probe, perhaps could even be dropped off by some larger spacecraft going through the inner solar system in the future, but um, something that could chemically sample the atmosphere or maybe even take some kind of life-detecting lab-on-a-chip technology and look for something that appears to be biologically active. That's not my field of expertise, but I really hope someone will give us some ideas of how to do that. And Sarah, coming to this this idea that there's life in the, the atmosphere of Venus, that the two, the two things that, that spring to mind with that are one, um, how did it get there you know could life or do we think life could have evolved in the clouds of, of venus and two what would it what would it look like i mean we've said not penguins but is this is this you know microbes just free floating uh what, what kind of thing are we talking about well first a, a most plausible scenario is that life originated on the surface of venus billions of years ago when venus was cool and when we think it hosted a liquid water ocean some of that life might have moved up into the clouds and evolved to be able to stay there permanently. And so when Venus heated up and went through a runaway phase where the oceans evaporated, the life on the surface would have died off, but life in the clouds would have survived. If there is life in the atmosphere, we're imagining it to be microbe type particles, simple single celled type of life. We can argue that that life has to be inside the cloud droplets because outside it's incredibly dry and there's really nothing there. They become completely like vacuum packed, if you will, sucked the life out of them, literally. But inside these droplets, the sulfuric acid is incredibly acidic. Any life form here on earth, like if we took some of your skin or we took an insect and dropped it into sulfuric acid, it would just dissolve immediately, honestly. So life inside these droplets couldn't have DNA because DNA dissolves, couldn't have amino acids or proteins as we know it, unless that life had a very protective shell. We know for sure that some things don't dissolve in sulfuric acid, like wax or graphite or sulfur or silicon, for example. So it's possible there could be life made up of different things than life on Earth, or life just has somehow has a protective shell where it somehow can let in what it needs. Dave, you mentioned... Um some science fiction references earlier, H.G. Wells and so on. Where, where does this leave us in our, our thoughts of, of life elsewhere? This really opens up the, the world of thoughts of life elsewhere hugely, right? Absolutely. Under the assumption that we have actually found the signs of life in Venus, and of course the jury is still out on that, the kinds of planets where life can evolve and persist seem suddenly to be much broader than, than we have thought before. But to my mind, the important question, the most important question here is how different is the life on Venus? If we're able to send a space probe into the clouds and bring samples of the life forms, microbes back to Earth and subject them to the, the full rigor uh, of a biochemistry lab on Earth, and we find that there is some kind of, as I was saying, that there's some kind of uh, protective shell, but everything else inside that shell is similar 
to the kind of biology we see on Earth, so using DNA for heredity, using the similar genetic code, using similar metabolic pathways. Then we have a similarity to what we have seen here on Earth. And the question then arises is whether, whether life only evolved once in the solar system, but spread to other places. Now we see that this is possible, uh, material transfers from one planet to other planets in the solar system. And if Venus was a hospitable environment at the same time as, as life evolved on Earth, then you can have this kind of panspermia effect where it starts off in one place and spreads to other places in the solar system. It would still be very, very interesting for life to be on Venus um, in those circumstances, but it doesn't speak to the question of how often can life emerge elsewhere in the galaxy. But if it turns out that the life on Venus doesn't use DNA for heredity, uses something completely different, uses different metabolic processes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, doesn't use proteins at all, perhaps, as Sarah was suggesting, then we have two entirely separate origins for life in our own solar system, which means that you know, life can come up with all sorts of different ideas of how to exist. And that really has a very, very fundamental implication for the possibility of life elsewhere. And that would be truly exciting. There's a huge amount of speculation left to do uh, with this at present. Now, Jane, you mentioned that this, lots of these aspects aren't your research expertise uh, in the past. I'm sure you've learned a lot in the process of this study, but uh, do you think you're, you're going to be sort of turning a corner in terms of your, your research? Or is this going to be another thing that, that sort of another string to the bow? You know, is this... Um, how do you feel this is going to be for you in the future with, with following up uh, this discovery? I think one of the nice things about doing science is you can take these complete zigzags. This is certainly not the science I did for my PhD, which I got in 1990. Um, I've zigzagged around doing a whole load of different things with telescopes like the JCMT. So if this is an opportunity to chat and learn more about biology and chemistry, which it certainly has been, um, that's that's really good fun. And like I say, I'm really hoping we might have some um, space probe experiment and I might get to be involved in that as well. So it's an exciting journey of discovery, whatever the final result turns out to be, whether this does turn out to be life or it does turn out to be some new uh, exotic chemistry or something we've never uh, thought of before. It's an exciting way of exploring the process of science being done. And obviously I'm hopeful that as more results come out, that uh, everyone can be brought along uh, for the ride. Uh, my thanks to everyone. So Professor Jane Greaves, Professor Sarah Seeger and Dr. Dave Clements. That's it for this month. You can find past episodes and subscribe to the podcast at pythagastro.uk. And you can also search for us on Spotify. Until next month. Goodbye. <laughs> You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.